What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today. Today, I'm talking to Rachel Carpenter, the CEO of a company called Entrenio. Entrenio really does two things. Number one, they have access to financial data like stock prices and index prices, and they make this data available to developers through their APIs. Number two, they have apps and analytics built on top of this data, which they sell to investors who use these apps to make better investment decisions. Now, what's really cool is the story behind how they built all of this stuff, because it wasn't easy. On the contrary, it was super hard, and they had to be scrappy and determined and not give up when things got tough. So there's a lot to learn here, and I'm super excited to get into it. So, Rachel, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming on. Let's start at the beginning, because I think one of the coolest and most interesting parts of your story is how you got started. And you guys actually weren't in the data business to begin with. You guys, uh, what you started doing is totally different than what Entrenio does today. But while you were on that path, you ran into this wall, and you ended up pivoting in order to tear down that wall for yourself and for other people. So what's the story there? <laughs> it, is a, it is an interesting story, because we weren't always in the data business. Um, I met my co-founder, Joey French, when I was in college. We both went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, heavy into the finance side of things. He was uh, studying to become a CPA. I was studying finance. Um, and we came together and had an idea for an app that we wanted to build. Um, we wanted to build something to disrupt the valuation space. So getting a valuation, whether it's a stock that you want to buy or a business or an entity or an estate, is a really expensive service to have done. It's typically like 50000 to $100,000 to have a valuation run on your business. Um, but a lot of what happens there is really automated. So that's how we think. We always think about what's a more efficient way, how can things be automated. And we wanted to build an app to do that. So we set off and actually taught ourselves how to program the following year. Lesson to be learned here, we built the app before looking for the data for it. So we, we took an entire year, which ended up being a great decision um, because it really shaped both of our perspectives as leaders to teach ourselves web development. So Joey learned all of the back-end side of things, um, Ruby, database architectures, and I learned all the front-end um, design languages that we needed. So together with a finance background and then all of the technical skills built on top of that, we started to build our app out. And we probably put a year and a half into this. Um, originally, we were screen scraping data from 10,000 websites, you know, things like the finance API and, and different things like that, because there's a lot of different data that goes into building an app like that for valuation. And obviously, that is semi-illegal and not a, way, not a product that you can commercialize or use publicly or sell anywhere. So once we finally had everything built, we started looking for legitimate ways to source that data, things like financial statement information, stock prices, you know, there's a, a multitude of different types of data you need to power an application like that. Um, so we went to the big providers, the typical suspects, the Bloomberg, Capital IQ, Thomson Reuters, FactSet, Morningstars of the world, these big five firms that basically have an oligopoly in the data space. And we got quoted $50,000 a month. So I think for many of the listeners, you know, who were kind of in the same boat that we were in, when you're in early stage, you know, I was sleeping on a couch that year. I wasn't <laughs> making any money. I was, I had just learned how to program and we were trying to get this thing off the ground. We thought we had a really good idea and it was just a complete dead stop for us. So we had to really reconvene and think about it's pretty much impossible at that stage to justify an expense like that. We would have had to go out and raise at least, you know, $5 million to be able to afford those resources to power our app. So we had to stop and think really long and hard about how can we solve this problem, which kind of catapulted us on this new journey to figure out data because data was a roadblock. And if it was a roadblock for us, we knew it was a roadblock for other people. And, you know, as, as was mentioned in our article, we were angry. We had put all this work in and building an innovative app like that is just not feasible. And, it's, it's hindering a lot of innovation. So we took that anger and productively went out and figured out a way to source all the data. Um, and that's kind of how we ended up in the data business instead. Wow. So there's a lot there. But I want to start by zooming in on the fact that very early in your business's life, you guys decided to drop everything and learn how to code. And what's fascinating about that to me is that there's a lot of you know, aspiring founders and entrepreneurs who don't know how to code and are trying to make this decision. 
should I learn how to code now and then start my business? Or should I just start right now and outsource all my development? Or maybe find a co-founder to work with who's technical. And it's a tough decision to make because obviously both options are pretty expensive. Learning to code takes a ton of time and that's a huge investment. And hiring developers also costs us a lot of money. So how did you guys come to the conclusion that you did where you ended up learning to code? I mean, did you pick that just because it was the cheaper of the two options or were other factors at play? Yeah, it was cheaper. We didn't want to, you know, we thought we were onto a pretty powerful idea and we didn't want to give away a huge chunk of the business um, was one part of it to save money, um, not give a bunch away. But on the other hand as well, FinTech is so specific to having, you know, area expertise of finance, the calculations that were being run in the background of all of our code and understanding how, you know, the relationships among line items in a financial statement and how, you know, how you calculate return on equity and how all of these different ratios and metrics are calculated and standardized. It's, it's not just basic coding. It's very complex when it, when you add in all the financial side of things as well. So, you know, I lived in the easy, happy front end land, but Joey, um, Joey spent a lot of time in the back end building our database and all of our um, algorithms and machine learning stuff out. So he was in the thick of basically taking his knowledge as a CPA and coding that into logic. So if you would have taken a CPA and put them next to a back end developer, it probably would have taken four times as long for them to communicate. Also, because a CPA doesn't think like a developer. Um, they have very different mindsets, very different ways of attacking problems and, and solving things. So having both of those mindsets that we both had financial expertise and we both had the technical skills, we were able to move really fast um, and build something pretty powerful quickly. So it was a competitive advantage for us to learn how to code on our own um, because most people don't take the time to do that. And then there's an, a communication barrier there and you can't move quite as quickly. So it was, a, it was a good decision. That makes perfect sense. Do you have any tips for people who are listening who might have just started learning to code or thinking about it to help them I guess, succeed and learn as fast as possible? Like, How did you go about it and how long did it take you to learn? Oh my gosh. It took, I mean, Joey was in the programming mindset since he was like 16. He started with VBA, so doing Excel programming, and then Drupal, and then kind of moved on to the Ruby technologies and database technologies. So he had been learning, I would say, casually for a few years and then pretty seriously for about two years to get to where he is. Um, I took an entire year to get me from complete zero computer literacy, like none at all. Um, literally just Googling, you know, how do I set up a development environment? How do I make a square appear on the screen? How do I turn that square blue? How do I rotate it 180 degrees to the right? You know, just step by step teaching myself using Google, um, using Code Academy a little bit until I got to a point where I could build an entire website from scratch for us. It wasn't great, don't get me wrong, but after that year of, you know, self-teaching and, and getting to that point, I took um, a course from a group in Chicago called the Starter League. It's actually a pretty phenomenal organization. Um, they call it the Starter League because they help you start something is their idea. You know, you, got, you have to get started and learning how to code is the way to get started. So people that want to start a business don't know how to code. They take you in and they help you start, basically. Um, so I took an advanced HTML and CSS course for animations, transitions, you know, all the complex stuff I hadn't taught myself to take myself from kind of high school to college level. <laughs> um, so it was a it was a journey of about a year and a half for myself. Um, and to be honest, I've I've since hired a CTO who is ridiculous at coding. He is you know extremely talented. And I don't necessarily do the day to day coding anymore because we've grown and I've since hired people to do that. But learning even just a little bit at the beginning is so important if you're going to be the leader of a company because it's my job to consistently communicate between what we call the back of the house and the front of the house, the development team and the revenue team, and being able to communicate between both teams. I don't know if you've ever seen that um, hilarious skit where they have the project management team talking to the developers, and the project management team is like, well, we want the lines to be parallel and perpendicular. Why can't you do that? We want it to be red and blue at the same time. And the developer is like, oh, my God, you just don't understand why that's impossible. So, that makes no sense. Yeah, but it's hilarious because that is the reality of, of the front of the house talking to the back of the house. And you can run into problems like that if you don't understand at a base level, you know, how development works, how logic works, back end, front end. So I would say that I'm not a great developer, but I got to the point where I knew how to hire a great developer and I know how to talk to them and how to communicate well between the teams. And that's 
pretty important, um, at, at least it has been in our experience. So it's worth, um, you know, whether you want to be great and really focus on it and be the programmer, or whether you want to just learn enough to be able to be knowledgeable about it, either way, I think it's pretty important. So fast forward to like 2015, you guys have, you know, learned basically how to code. Uh, and just for some context, your brother, Andrew Carpenter, who uh, works with you at Entrenio and was, was one of the first employees, uh, actually did a text interview on ND Hackers. So if you're listening and you haven't checked out that interview, definitely give it a read after this podcast. But one of the things he mentioned was that you know, it took you guys a few years to really get to the point where your product worked and it was something that you, know, you were ready to push out to people. Besides learning the code, you know, what, what went in to that time period? What took so long? And also, how did you persevere? Because it's super easy to quit six months into a project, let alone like three years. Yeah, definitely. So we went about it in an interesting way. Whether it was the easiest way to do it or not, I don't know. (laughs) Probably not. But we built what I would call our technology before we built our business. We needed to find a way to source data. And we spent a year and a half manually sifting through financial statements, as thrilling as that sounds. (laughs) Trust me, it wasn't. And that was a bad year. (laughs) In in order to basically train a machine learning algorithm, you have to feed it the correct data and and let it kind of grow over time. So we had to understand the logic and the relationships within financial statements in order to teach our code to automatically clean them up and organize them. So there was a big manual approach. And then once we understood it well, we turned that into just algorithmic rules-based kind of a system. And then we took that algorithmic system and eventually started incorporating aspects of machine learning to it to get it to a point where it's really just humming and ticking along and pulling in financial filings and other um, structured data sets and automatically cleaning them up without with very little human intervention with a really high quality rate. So that solved our problem, right? We had built a better way to source data. It was faster, it was cheaper, it was algorithmic, and it meant that we ended up with higher quality data. So that was great. And we started feeding that into our app. And we knew that that was a more powerful business even than the app. And we wanted to build a business around it. So we were sitting on top of a disruptive technology. We built it. It was great. That took over a year just to build that technology. And at that point, we had to look at it and go, okay, but now how do we build a business around this? Because a technology isn't useful unless you have a business around it. And that's when that journey kind of started of how do we price this? It's so disruptively cheap for us to service this data relative to these super expensive seat licenses and subscriptions with all these restrictions, how do we land on the right price to build, you know, a profitable business about with it, but also, you know, making it still affordable enough that we can reach huge markets of people. So figuring out pricing was one whole problem and then figuring out distribution was another one. Um, so let me stop you there. Cause I definitely want to like deep dive in like the whole pricing thing and the fact that you guys compete on price, which is pretty unique among the people that I've interviewed. But before we get into that, how many, how many of you were there working on like this initial product to get the technology done? So building the technology was pretty much, that was a lot on Joey's shoulders. Um, he did a lot of that. Um, and it was myself and him for a solid year and a half. Um, and then we brought Connor Farley on board, who's now our chief revenue officer. So that was about the time the technology was getting there. We were feeding securities and, you know, working our way up to full coverage of U.S. companies. So the technology was built, but it took a lot of time to feed all of the data through it. So Connor came on about that time, um, which was perfect timing because it was at that time we needed to figure out our business model around the technology. So then it was just the three of us. For and about- if I can just interrupt here for a second, uh, you guys weren't generating any revenue here at this point. So how did you afford to pay for all of this? We had raised a small amount from friends and family at that point, that was pretty much enough to keep ramen noodles on the table. (laughs) We lived off of a $100,000 investment from friends and family for like close to three years with three people. So it was, it was tough. (laughs) But again, we knew, we knew we were building with powerful. We didn't, we didn't want to give it away. We knew we were close to figuring out the right formula for the business model. And we didn't want to, uh, we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves and we wanted to get further before we raised further funds. So it was really Joey and I for a year and a half, Connor came on. And then right when things started getting figured out with the business models and my brother, Andrew Carpenter joined us. So now we have eight employees. So we're, we're getting up there. So you guys must've had like pretty fanatical belief and like your eventual success to, to have pushed on through that period. Cause that's not a lot of money for three people to live off of. No, not at all. <laughs> And as Andrew points out, if, you, if the listeners have a chance to read the article, it's pretty hilarious. But 
my mom actually owns a wine bar in St. Petersburg, Florida, and we all bartended at the wine bar. <laughs> so I think Joey was the only one who didn't bartend. We joked because we used to make him wash dishes sometimes. But um, so we were bartending, you know, working, coding, programming, building the website, figuring things out during the day, and then bartending through the night. Um, Joey and I were sharing a studio apartment together. We had two beds in a tiny box and Connor and Andrew were living on a sailboat together. <laughs> so we had <laughs> probably combined with the four of us, the number of square footage we were living in was pretty, pretty pathetic, but it made us stronger and, and kind of reinforced, you know, it's not always easy. And there's definitely the top and the bottom of the roller coaster um, continuously to get through. If you're, if you're building something great, it doesn't happen overnight. So yeah, that was a tough year. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but it was after that, that we got to a point where we thought we had something pretty good and it was, it was easier to raise angel capital at that point, And we were able to uh, get off the ramen noodle diet. <laughs> yeah. And you guys are obviously like a very mission driven company uh, where you care a lot about making this data cheaper and more easily available to people. Do you think, uh, this is a topic that a lot of people have brought up to me recently, actually, like they've asked me, you know, whether or not I think that you have to be mission driven in order to succeed. What do you think about it? Like, do you think it's possible to build a successful company if you're just in it for the money or for the lifestyle? Or do you think you have to passionately care about a product that you're building too? I don't know because I've never known anything else. I wouldn't even call myself a serial entrepreneur. I'm just a, a single entrepreneur. This is the only thing I've ever done. I, you know, straight from my senior year of college, I started doing this and I had friends who would ask me, this is great, Rachel, but you're sleeping on a couch and you don't have any money. So what's your plan B? <laughs> and I just look at them with this blank stare because I don't, I don't have a plan B. This yeah, is, what's a plan I believe B? very strongly. What, yeah. What is that? So, um, I believe very strongly in it and I've, I've done my best to instill that in everybody that we've added to the team since that point. So I don't know anything else. And I think it's been the reason we got through those hard times. I mean, I can count dozen times that we would look at each other and go, is this going to work? Maybe we should stop. And we didn't, I think. And pretty much the only reason we didn't is because we cared so much about making this available. You know, we were personally affected by the gap in the industry. So I personally don't know anything else. And it's the reason we're still here. So I think it's very important. But I do also recognize that there are different business models, you know, business models that you don't necessarily need to raise capital to grow, business models that are more brick and mortar um, or kind of lifestyle businesses. Uh, So I think some of those types of businesses are easier if you aren't super passionately burning with desire to build something. But if you're, if you have a big idea that has a big market and requires time and effort and raising capital, especially because that's one of the biggest pieces of feedback I've gotten from investors that I've spoken to is that my passion shows through. And that's the reason we've gotten some of the funding we have. So if you need to raise money and you have a big idea, it's super important, but you know, there's definitely business models in which it's not as important. Yeah. I mean, if you're an investor and you're, and you're looking at someone and, you know, she spent a year and a half learning to code and she's living in like sharing a studio with her co-founder and it's like not done anything else and could easily get a job elsewhere making a lot more money than it's like, this is somebody I can believe in. You know, this is somebody I can invest in and I know that they're not going to quit until they succeed. Absolutely. So let's, let's fast forward to, to your four people now and you're kind of, you know, thinking about pricing. You know, how are you going to actually, and your business model as a whole, like how you're actually going to find customers and start making money. What was going through your mind at that time? Oh my goodness. Well, we were getting feedback from, you know, everybody tells you something different. I had traditional older advisors and investors who were like, you're way underpricing this. There's no way you're leaving so much on the table. And then I had other people saying, yeah, but you you want to capture all the market share and make it a no-brainer for somebody to sign up, make it so affordable they can't say no. And so you have kind of these pressures coming from both sides. And the evolution of our pricing model is freaking hilarious. We did everything. We started off with just, it's 25 bucks across the board for anyone, which was great. We got a ton of people to sign up, but we were giving away like massive amount of value. Um, so we got a lot of signups right away, which is exciting. And then we realized, okay, but this is wrong. So we swung from that direction so far to the other side to this like enterprise only pricing model and tried to make it look, you know, like this institutional product, which scared people away because we didn't even put the pricing on the website. We just said contact us for pricing, enterprise pricing, which is the exact opposite of that. 
that didn't work either. That was way too far to the other direction. So then we came up with this like crazy tiered approach where we had like eight tiers of pricing, tier one, tier two. People were like, what's a tier? Like no, Nobody had any idea what that meant. And it was so complex in terms of like API call limits. Like it was like a slider bar basically up and down with API call limits, which to a degree is at the root of our mission, which is like you pay for what you use, but also just eight different levels and tiers. It was so confusing and so complex. It, it was damaging our sign-up rate. So then we kind of realized at that point, you know, after after having been through three different models, we were like, I think what we need more is personas. You know, we have a challenge in that we are selling API, APIs, but we have one API with a bunch of data feeds that get fed through it. So for developers, speaking about API call limits, obviously we understand it, but we also sell our data to investors who just use it in Excel. They don't know what an API is. They don't know what an API call is. So we said, Maybe if we personify these plans, people will understand where they fit a little bit better. And that's when we finally landed on this individual, professional, developer, startup, enterprise, which is kind of the taking the tiered approach, slimming it down and putting personas on top of it, which just made the user experience a lot better. Somebody comes to the website, they're not looking for a plan with 100,000 daily API calls. They're looking for, I'm a developer, this is the plan for me. So, you know, through personifying it, and that was about the time that we realized we needed to make a marketplace out of the data because we had so many products at that point. Um, so switching to the marketplace plan and switching to those kind of personified pricing plans was hitting the sweet spot for us. And that's where we finally landed. Yeah, the personas thing is really smart because like, like you said, it's basically just tiers. But I think when people go to a website and they're like looking at you know a product or service, like the question at the top of their mind is like, okay, is this for me? You know, is this like something that's made for people like me or is made for like some other type of person and I shouldn't use it? And so if you just like change the wording and say, okay, hey, if you're a developer, this is what you should do, you know, or if you're an investor, this is what you should do, then it instantly answers that question for people. When you're iterating through all these different pricing models, did you have in mind the entire time who exactly your customer would be? Or were you also kind of figuring that out along the way? We were figuring that out along the way. And, you know, I think Andrew kind of touched on this in the written article as well, that we were beating our head against the wall because initially we were more focused on investors than we were developers. Coming from a company where at that point in time, 75% of our employees were developers, <laughs> we weren't even really focusing that much on that. We didn't realize that we were on a hotbed. You know, we had built the most efficient distribution architecture for data that I've ever seen in the finance industry through, through open, easily accessible APIs with chat support, great documentation. That just screams developer. I mean, the, the feedback we get today from developers is phenomenal. They love our system. So, but we were like, this is financial data. It should, it should be sold to financial analysts and quant funds and hedge funds. And, and it is, we still do, but we were almost beating our head against the ground with that because it's not as easy for them to switch. You know, we're seeing margins tightening and we're seeing the financial landscape change and that those investor types are looking for more affordable solutions. But it's really hard to convince them. I think they'll come around and we're starting to see them come to the site. But going and knocking down the door of Morgan Stanley and telling everybody to use our data instead, it's not a smart strategy, I think, as we're, as we're scaling up. And I think our story resonates a lot better with developers because we're selling products to developers that are going through exactly what we went through. We created a solution to solve that problem. So I think we had this you know, massive brainstorming session where we went, are we targeting the right people? Should we change our language? Should we change what we're doing? Twist it a little bit towards a different target market. And we, we realized that developers were the sweet spot. You know, what we've built is a perfect solution for them. It is an API at the end of the day. Underneath the Excel add-in, it's an API. Underneath Google Sheets, it's an API. And that's the system we've built. So we did beat our heads against the wall with the investors. And I went to meeting after meeting, not understanding why they didn't want to get rid of their Bloomberg terminal or they didn't want to get rid of um, their capital IQ subscription. So it was a struggle, um, but we figured it out. And the community of developers that we're building around ourselves is fantastic. And it's so rewarding to see all these apps come alive with our data because it's, it's kind of why we started in the first place. So I think we, we found the sweet spot. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I totally understand from a revenue perspective, the appeal of wanting to target investors just because there's so much money there. What kind of information informed your decision to switch your focus to developers? Because you said that you had this brainstorming session. What did everybody bring to the table in this meeting? I mean, were you talking to customers to find out who they were? Or did you see an uptick in your user growth coming from developers? Or did you kind of just reason from first principles that you'd be better off targeting developers? It was a combination of a couple of things. We we use Intercom, which is something that Andrew talks about. It's one of 
it not one of it is the most transformative tool we've used in building our business. It's the it's the chat support on our website. It's very easy integration, chat bubble, analytics on every single thing the customer is doing. How when did they join? How much? How many API calls have they made? How much are they paying us? What's their location? Um, what operating system are they using? I mean, you have a direct insight into the customer you're chatting, and you can help them along the journey in real time, which is great. So we survey our customers. We talk to them. We chat them. And just a general sentiment, we were talking to a lot more developers um, than we had been. And we had just launched our developer program, which gives for qualifying startups to give data to them for free for six months. And we were adding like two to three startups to that program a week. The inbound interest for that program was huge. So the company should have kind of just the sentiment of, of talking to our customers all day long. You know, we've had thousands and thousands of conversations with them, but also that program starting to take off. And it was about that time, too, that we brought Alex Solo on as our CTO, who obviously lives and breathes in the developer community and has been for some time. And he's like, you guys, this is the perfect product for a developer. <laughs> he's like, you know, it's, it's funny having somebody from the back of the house come from not even remotely close to the marketing side of the business saying, this is who we need to be marketing to. I live and breathe in this and these guys are loving this. So Alex was a pretty big influence in saying, hey, wake up. <laughs> this is a better direction for us. Um, and, you know, listening to our customers as well. So it's kind of a combination of those things. That's really cool. I think there's a lot of people who are in the position where they've got a startup or they've got like an app that they launched and you know, maybe their their targeting or their marketing is super vague and it's kind of like everything to everyone. And they might run across the advice online that they should target like a particular niche or, you know, they should find a customer for whom their product is a really good solution. And it's just so hard for a lot of people to figure out who that is. And so it's fascinating to hear about you guys talking to your customers on Enacom. Did you have everybody at the company doing customer support or was it just a few people? Oh, it was a nightmare. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that, it's that growth stage where you're not expanding your team quite yet and everybody has to help out. So we, we have somebody who does it full time now, but you know, last year there were five of us and we were all doing customer support. We got to the point where we had to schedule it 24 hours a day. Um, thankfully, Joey, my co-founder, he has to do a lot of his programming when the markets are closed and he prefers programming at night. So he had like through three to 4 a.m. covered pretty well. And I'm an early riser, so I had like 5, 6 a.m. covered. So there was really only like an hour of the day in, in which customers in like, you know, Asian markets were messaging us that we didn't have great coverage. But our response time for that entire year was like less than 60 seconds to consumer uh, customer messages. So intercom's great. You know, you have it on your phone. So I'd be at the gym answering questions. I would be, you know, in my car at red lights answering questions. And everybody's doing it constantly all the time. And we would almost make a game out of it, race to see who could answer the question faster. But it was great from my perspective as well, because, you know, at, at steering the ship, it's important for me as well to understand what's going on, you know, at the ground level. And having conversations and, and getting the sentiment of our customers and, you know, if anybody's upset, me jumping in and being able to chat with them, when they find out they're talking to the CEO, even though they don't know it's the CEO of a five-person company, <laughs> it still means a lot to them to know that, you know, it's important for me to talk to the customers. And I still hop on chat support every once in a while just to get a pulse on it as well. Um, but it, it was definitely tough for a while. But it was also, at the same time, it's a good thing because people are visiting you, so visiting your website. So it was a challenge, but it was good. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask how you balanced doing all that customer support with actually like working on your product and doing like marketing and stuff because it's like it can be a lot of work uh, just answering emails, especially like I mean people will send you just like the most like random requests and just spend like you can spend an hour easily on one customer's email, let alone hundreds. Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, like I said, we just scheduled shifts. There's obviously sometimes those conversations you can't get to right away, but you're also talking about an industry where chat support doesn't even exist. I mean, on a Bloomberg terminal, they have they have pretty good support actually, but you know, I, we we've talked to customers where some of these bigger data vendors take 6 months sometimes to get back to them with like a spreadsheet update or something. So, people aren't used to having real-time support like that, which worked in our favor because nobody's ever done it before in in this industry. Um, so that works, you know, sometimes we can't get there right away. People are so grateful that we're helping them out on chat. Um, but really just scheduling. So you were just like, you were just blowing their minds, basically. They're like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. Yeah. 
not, not only is it tech support, but I'm talking to the CEO and this has never happened with a financial, you know, financial product before. So um, having it on our phones, the mobile app that Intercom had was huge because if I'm, you know, running between meetings with investors or out on the go, I can hop in, um, you know, maybe somebody else is on a sales call or Joey's deep in a coding project. I could still hop on and help when I'm on the go. And then scheduling shifts was pretty important too, but it, it was not easy. <laughs> Definitely not easy. Yeah. And I think one of the things that makes it hard for people to, to kind of strike the right balance or it makes it hard for people to commit to doing good customer support is that it just doesn't seem like, you know, it's easy for it to seem like, okay, well, I'm helping out my customers, but is it really the best way to, for me to spend my time? You know, is it making my company better? And you guys talked to like thousands of users. So what kinds of things did you learn? And, you know, what was the best thing to come out of doing customer support? We went through evolutions, right? We didn't, um, we're, in, we're in constant state of adding new data feeds to our marketplace. And we're in constant state of adding features and functionality, like our API call builder, our formula builder, data explorer, different features and things like that. Um, so I think constantly having a pulse on what people are looking for, you know, like currently we're getting so much, so many requests for Indian market fundamentals. We have Indian market uh, stock prices, but we don't have fundamentals yet. And the amount of interest we have in that people chat us and say, do you have this? Do you have that? And we keep a tally of it saying, oh, we had 75 conversations in the past month with people who want this data feed. Maybe we should prioritize adding that to the marketplace. So in terms of directing our product expansion and which data feeds and data sets we go after, it's huge. And then also um, just general like support type questions, like frequently asked questions. So maybe we had like at one point, a bunch of conversations with somebody who said, where do I enter my credit card? And we went, oh, maybe our credit card page sucks. <laughs> People aren't finding it. What's wrong with this? And so it helps you kind of direct your attention into those different areas of the website that maybe need a little UX touch up or a little help. You know, maybe things they don't understand, the way something's worded um, uh, doesn't make sense. It kind of helps you fix those things. And then we also had a system that Andrew uh, built, which is pretty genius, where if we get asked a question a certain number of times, we write a blog about it just because we don't have time to answer these questions over and over again. So Intercom, Intercom has a feature um, where you can have saved replies. So if somebody frequently asks, um, like we get questions all the time about market cap. It's hilarious. Like the amount of times people ask us about market cap. How do I pull historical market cap? And so we have a saved reply where you just start typing market cap and the answer automatically comes up. Um, and it saves a ton of time because when you have, you know, 20 conversations going at once with customers, being able to just shoot them an answer really quick is huge. So um, we use the save reply. And then, like I said, if we get enough questions, we wrote a blog about market cap. We went, hey, here's all the ways you can pull market cap, current market cap, historical market cap. Here's how you pull it through the API. Here's how you do it via Excel. Here's how we calculate it. Here's where it comes from. Every piece of information you would need. And then we just shoot a link to that blog through a saved reply to the customer and their, their questions are immediately answered. Um, Another huge one for us, Microsoft Excel is clunky. And when people try to download the add-in to, to use the data in Excel, it's a nightmare sometimes. And there's frequently something really simple, like you didn't enable your macros or something simple like that. So instead of diagnosing the problem step-by-step step with them, we wrote a, a troubleshooting guide. And we just shoot them the troubleshooting guide and say, hey, have you gone through all these steps? If not, okay, then go check this out. I'm sure it'll solve your problem. If not, come back and chat to us and we're more than happy to help you. So just little efficiencies like that um, helps with UX, helps us determine which products to go after and helps fix little, little areas of the website that maybe people are getting stuck on. So it's been a huge help to us. I think people really underestimate the benefit of, of talking to users because it's so easy to have a model in your head of you know, what your business does and who uses it and where to find them and what the best things to work on are. And if you don't actually talk to people, like you never reconcile that like mental model with reality, you know. And so, it's super helpful to talk to people. Um, was there any anything that customers asked you about or asked you for all the time that you just decided not to do? That's a great question. Because it's it's difficult to draw a line sometimes between, you know, okay, what are we going to do because we know it's the right thing to do versus like what are we going to do that's reactionary. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges we have right now is with novice developers. So we can absolutely support API issues. If it's an issue with our API, if it's a data point that's not working correctly, um, and even kind of on the fringe, like how to authenticate correctly with the API, like getting it set up, getting it running. Um, but when it comes to, hey, I got authenticated correctly and I'm pulling your data through I mean, my Python code, but something's not working we can't teach you how to code <laughs> in, in, in the nicest way possible, right? Like we, we can't 
you can't just, you know, add us to your GitHub repository and have us go in and fix it for you. <laughs> like, we're not, we're, yeah, we're not your code teachers. Um, and and it's, it's tough for me because I learned how to code and the amount of times I run into a bug and be stuck for two weeks and it was something super simple that if somebody had just looked at it and fixed it. So it's painful for me because I totally get it. But at the same time, when we're chatting customers who are about to pay us and do all this stuff, you know, we can't. We can't edit your code for you. So that's a painful one. Um, but we do have to draw a line there and say, you know, we leave it open. We're like, we have developers on staff. If somebody's feeling really nice, maybe Alex, our CTO, is bored and he wants to hop on there and, and just be nice and solve something for you. Like, maybe we'll take a look at it, but we don't solve code issues. So if you're having a problem with the API, we can help you. But, you know, go on Stack Overflow, Google it, um, be diligent. I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> so that's, that is a tough one for us. So let's let's go back in time a little bit because in order to to even get to the point where you're doing like this fanatical customer support and writing blog posts to preempt customers' questions and having everybody stay up at all hours of the night to talk to customers, you actually have to have people coming to your website, right? So they can actually get into this intercom widget. How did you, you know, go from just having your technology and your product to having, you know, getting your first customers and your like the first trickle of users to your website? Well, the good news about marketing to developers is that you guys are really smart. (laughs) And unlike a lot of normal consumers, you know how to find what you need on the internet and you do it very well. So, you know, we found that the Ruby developers were living in these little communities online and talking to each other. And the Java developers were living in these communities and the Ruby developers. So the thing that we figured out is that they were really good at finding us, which was great when we were getting started because we didn't necessarily have a marketing strategy figured out on day one. So... Just in terms of search engine optimization, we were kind of killing it from day one. We optimized our site really well. We were doing a lot of blogging, a lot of content, a lot of quality content. And that piggybacked really well into our forum strategy. So I know Andrew spoke a little bit on the article about Quora. But Quora was one of the most genuine ways for us to drive traffic. Because you're you know, searching around Quora, finding somebody that says, where is there an affordable data API for stock prices? Like, I can't get it. I can't get it from Yahoo. It's illegal. I can't buy a Bloomberg terminal. Like, where can I find this? And people are literally asking specifically for what you do. Um, you can find and answer those questions. And it is like the most, not only the most genuine answer, you know, we're not selling you, you're literally asking for this. Um, a, a link that links to a website that lives forever, as long as core is around. <laughs> And driving really high quality traffic for us, which is important too. I mean, you can drive hundreds of thousands of hits, but if they're not the right people, it doesn't matter. So it was super targeted, super genuine, and super evergreen in terms of just the links living for a long time. So we were able to really target in on customers that way. And after that strategy started, I mean, within a month, Quora, outside of direct and uh, search engine, Quora was our number three driver of traffic to the website, which is pretty, you know, above social media, above the blog, above anything else. So... Um, building content, quality content was important. Finding people asking questions on, on forums and being genuine was really important. Um, so our SEO strategy was huge in the beginning, and that's, um, that's a big part of what drove our growth. But I got to give credit to the developers themselves. I mean, they find us. <laughs> they find us from all stretches of the Internet somehow. They, they know what they're looking for. They search for the right terms. We pop up, and, and they find us. So we were very lucky and fortunate earlier on. Um, just to have a lot of traffic from people because I think for a long time people didn't have a solution like this and they've been waiting for it. So um, they, they were ready to come to come say hi, which was good. Yeah, I think that's like a huge benefit of your decision to focus on developers because like you said, like developers are a community. You know, they're a good niche where they hang out with each other and they talk to each other and they share things that are good. And, you know, for people listening, if you're worried, you know, oh, should I you know, pivot my business to target a specific niche. If I do that, won't I be excluding other people? Uh, I think the benefits are well worth the cost because people in a niche talk to each other. You know, you're not going to have a product spread via word of mouth if it's, you know, something you sell to everybody because teachers don't talk to construction workers about, you know, your tool. But, you know, if it's only one group, you know, you know exactly where they hang out, then like you can get them talking and spreading your stuff. So I think that's really awesome. Uh, Did you guys have like an SEO expert in the house or like, you know, content expert or were you kind of just winging it early on? We were winging it. Um, I had a C in marketing <laughs> and I did all of our marketing in the beginning. So um, I just researched, you know, I'm true to my nature, the way I taught myself how to program. There's a lot of content out there that can teach you pretty quickly. So, um, you know, I YouTube videos and blogs and different things and, and webinars and different resources online that I could look to to figure out what the right strategy was. And, you know, when it comes down to it, it's it's content and it's creating quality content 
that actually matters to the customers that you want. So that's when we started really focusing on our blog. Um, Andrew, who did the the article with you guys online, is a phenomenal writer. He's actually a published author. Um, and he has a degree in psychology, which is really interesting for creating content. <laughs> so he's done a great job of building out our blog. He writes very clearly about topics that he knows our customers care about. So he was great on the content creation side and obviously a social media strategy that goes hand in hand with that. Um, and I did a lot of social media early on as well. So, um, you know, our CTO, Alex, in terms of like the on-site SEO, he killed that. Um, he's very good at it. Um, and then the content stuff, we just kind of learned as we went and figured out over time. Do you think blogging and writing articles was more or, you know, like the SEO aspect of things was more or less impactful than, say, your, you know, your efforts to answer questions on Quora? If you could only choose one of those, which one would you have done? Quora, hands down. Interesting. So Quora was just driving crazy traffic for you guys, huh? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. It's, it's a tough one because you can't not blog. I mean, there's, we have to have a pulse and a presence and we have to, we have to have somewhere where our customers can come learn about new features and, and different things like that. So you, you kind of have to blog. But I would say Quora was way more powerful in terms of driving traffic than our blog was. And what kinds of things were you blogging about? Because I, I totally agree with you. Like You can't not blog, but at the same time, it's like very easy to just not blog. Or to do a really bad job at blogging because like, oh, I heard I have to blog, so I guess I'll just write about how I started my company and then I won't post for another three months. Like, What did you write about and how did you come up with ideas for content? Yeah. I mean, obviously, early on, we weren't great. We all made mistakes. I mean, I I wrote blogs sometimes that people just didn't make any sense or nobody cared about. Joey did a massively academic, like, 12-page blog that nobody would ever read. So we made mistakes. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's blogs out there that are not great. But I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. Um, First of all, the support questions, which, you know, for us, it's more of we want to be able to direct people there so we don't have to spend time answering their questions, to be frank with you. But those are still important. People can, if they have a problem, they can search and find a blog to help answer their question. So how to do this, how to do that, troubleshooting guides. And then we do a blog every single time we introduce a new product in the marketplace. So, hey, we have a new product. You can come here to read all about it. You know, who do we partner with or do we source it ourselves? How is it used? What's some examples of the data? You know, how are other customers using it? What are they building with it? Um, just kind of an announcement about a new product on the on the marketplace, which is another another good piece of content. Um, and then just updates from the company. You know, how are we growing? We do updates once in a while. We add new people to the team. And then we also do a lot of spotlights. So examples of uh, developers that have built something cool with our data. So um, everybody that goes through our developer program, that six months free data program, we do a spotlight on them and we say, you know, here's how they got started. Here's how they learned to code. Um, here's what they built with our data. Um, it's great for us because it's an opportunity to show what's possible. And, you know, these are the kinds of things people are building when they get access to this. But for them, it's also important too, because they might not necessarily have marketing skills. They're probably a badass developer who built an awesome FinTech technology, but they may not necessarily know how to talk about it or how to describe it yet. Um, so it's a promotional help for them, too, to get the word out um, and kind of showcase the hard work they put in. So that's one of my favorites, that Developer Spotlight series. I personally write those because it's so rewarding to dig into the new products that are built. Um, so that Spotlight series is great. So, you know, it's a combination of help, FAQ, troubleshooting guides, new product announcements, just updates from the company, spotlights of people that are using um, using our data. So it's it's a pretty big range, but it's it's getting getting robust. Yeah, the spotlights sound great because it's a, like a perfect demonstration of what your product can do. So anyone who's like on the fence about using it, who doesn't understand it, could just read that and be like, oh, I get it. Like, look what this guy built. Yeah, it's great. On that note, you had all these developers you basically talking about Entrenio. And I know you guys aren't the only company to exist that sells you know, financial data and APIs. What do you think differentiated you from the competition that you know made it so people would talk about you instead of talking about other companies? Well, I mean, obviously, we've beaten intercom support over the head, but I can't stress it enough. Um, the amount of like love we get from our customers that are like, oh, you actually talked to me. You were a human being in the United States, like most likely are a developer yourself that's chatting with me, um, and it was instant, and you solved my problem. So we get a lot of respect and a lot of shout-outs in terms of support, which is great. Um, so support is one big thing. Um, the other thing that's huge for us is the fact that we actually source a lot of the products on our own. So there's other marketplaces out there and other places to buy data. Um, half of them are big firms that's restrictive and expensive, and the other half are marketplaces that just redistribute data from the big firms. 
So they're not necessarily sourcing any of the products on their own. Um, and because we have this underlying technology underneath the marketplace, it means that we can source data sets. And since we did it algorithmically, it's cheaper and not subject to any restrictions. That's why we have such a loose an open redistribution policy with all of our data feeds. So um, the fact that we're built on top of that solid foundation means our products are cheaper and way less restrictive in terms of, you know, we want you to go build something. That's why we focus on developers. Like, go build something off and take this data. We want to power you to go to go build something cool. So support's huge. The fact that we have the technology, it's cheaper, it's higher quality, and it's very, very low restriction is huge as well. And then also our architecture, I think, the fact that we have spent so much, you know, we spent so much time from a financial perspective, we're dealing in with a niche of financial data. And in terms of the architecture that goes into constructing, constructing that, you have to be very organized. <laughs> You're dealing with 300,000, over 300,000 global securities. Some of them trade on multiple exchanges. They have different identifications, you know, between tickers and, and other, other identification numbers, different classes of stock, different securities within companies. It's crazy how complex it is. And um, hats off to Joey because he's the one who built our security master. So we are one API, which makes it so much easier for developers to integrate um, versus integrating multiple APIs. You just choose which data feeds you want, and they all flow through one singular API, which makes development so much easier. We did it on purpose because the point is to market this for developers. So having that clean architecture that, you know, if you're calling a piece of data you want from, you know, let's say Tesla from three different data feeds, maybe you want the stock price from one feed, you want the revenues from another feed, and you want the executive compensation from a third feed, you know you're getting the same data across all data sets. It's not just like individual static databases that are sitting there. It's a totally integrated data set. Um, so that infrastructure, I think, is pretty important and especially makes development a lot more efficient for our customers. Yeah, I mean, you guys got a pretty complex product. You've got all sorts of different data feeds and different APIs. And you, then you've got a bunch of apps that, and plugins that you've built. I think the coolest one is this. I have a screenshot of it and, uh, or like an animated GIF of it inside the text interview of like the Excel one where you just go into Excel and you just type like equals and Trinio or something and it'll, it'll give you a stock price. And I think this is, you know, totally different than a lot of companies which have the opposite approach. You know, they're just going to do one super simple thing and that's it. For example, a company like Scotch Cheap Flights, who I talked to last week, and like all they do is just find cheap flights. Do you see any of your your products standing out above the rest? And like, how do you know, you know, what to build and what to focus on when you have so many different products? So, you know, we think about the business in kind of two chunks, data and apps. So the data feeds, like I said, we just listen to our customers. You know, do you want Indian fundamentals? Maybe they want the sentiment data or some random alternative data set. We know we can go focus on that and get that because we're listening to our customers. So we've got it down pat in terms of the R&D pathway to new data feeds. And then we kind of let the market just drive the app side of the business. So we drew a pretty hard line in terms of we want to be the data provider and not the analytics builder. Part of the reason a lot of the big firms have such crazy redistribution fees is because they do both data and analytics. Those guys don't want to give you an open API because they know that you're going to go build something better (laughs) than what they built, right? So that's why they put massive restrictions on. So we made a point to not be in that camp. We want to be just a data provider so that you can build the app. We don't have a conflict of interest. We want you to succeed. We want you to redistribute. So we have this influx of developers coming to the site, and we believe they have the best pulse on the market. They know they know what they're building. They're the expert in their specific type of fintech or whatever technology or app they're building. Um, so as long as you meet our two basic qualifications – um, you get into the developer program and you can build an app. And then we put that app on our marketplace. So we're building out our own apps per se, just on the data digestion side. So Microsoft Excel, Google Sheets, um, the screener is kind of on the border that we built um, in collaboration with Microsoft. So we're working on enhancing those things, um, enhancing the ways you can digest the data, um, which is where those Intrinio apps, the Excel the screener come into play. But we're not really playing in the camp of building actual apps because we want our community to build those. And then when they do build them, we put them up on the marketplace so that it's kind of like similar to Google Play, but for fintech. Um, it's just extra exposure for them to, to provide that. And then we also offer um, uh, authentication and payment processing as well. The annoying parts of building an app, the stuff that you don't want to build. <laughs> um, so you can authenticate through Intrinia. We can handle payment processing and stuff for you. So you can just focus on what you're good at. So that's authentication, payment processing, promotion, distribution to the marketplace. Um, we offer all those services so that the developers can, if, if you want them, 
so the developers can focus on what they're good at. And they they tell us what apps are valuable. You know, they come to us and say, we're building this. It's a good idea. Um, and put it on the marketplace. So, so we're just focused on supporting them and listening to our investor customers about which, which data sets to go after. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a consistent theme here of, you know, how are you growing? Well, you're talking to customers and delivering good customer support, which, you know, makes them love you and, and spread you through word of mouth. Or how are you deciding what to build? Well, you're talking to customers and figuring out what their pain points are, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the answer to everything. So maybe the answer to my next question is kind of predictable, but, you know, to end with, what is your advice for aspiring founders or what is something that you wish you knew right when you were starting out? Yeah, I mean, you, you nailed it. It's, it's talking to customers is the biggest thing. Um, you know, don't be afraid would be another one. There are so many resources out there. I mean, even us, we're a resource. We give you data, we give you support. If you have an idea and you know it's good, don't wait. Don't just go after it. You know, my, my favorite phrase I've been using around the office lately is that the big don't eat the small, the fast eat the slow. And the fintech market is moving so quickly that if you have a good idea, just go after it. You know, learn how to code, get after it, start, as the starter league in Chicago would say, um, because things are moving too quickly. And, you know, there are resources out there. So just do a Google search, find out who's there to help you and support you. Um, that would be one thing. And then also talk to your customers. You know, we would have gone down so many wrong paths. <laughs> we would be getting stupid data sets that nobody wants, or we would be still beating down the doors of institutional investors if we weren't listening to our customers. So that's pretty important. You know, use chat support, use different things like that. It's going to be a pain in the ass. Like I was a CEO trying to raise money and focus on really important things and, you know, getting up at two in the morning to answer a question from somebody in Singapore. So it's a pain in the ass, but you wouldn't be doing this if you weren't (laughs) willing, willing to go through all that stuff anyway. So it is super important to talk to your customers and, and to move quickly. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that's, that's awesome advice and I hope people can uh, force themselves to follow it, even when it is a pain in the ass. Can you let us know where people can go to find out more about you, Rachel, and about Intrenio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just hop on our website. It's www.intrenio.com. It's I-N-T-R-I-N-I-O. Um, obviously, definitely check out the article that was written on IndieHackers.com. They did a fantastic job. And thank you so much for featuring us. Um, this has been a pleasure. I mean, you guys... You guys have a mission that's very parallel with ours as well in, in helping developers get started. So thank you for having me. This is a blast. Thanks for coming on. It's nice talking to you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Indie Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out. And I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the IndieHackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.IndieHackers.com forum. Hope to see you guys there.